Welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I am Justin. And I'm Darren. And today we are going to be discussing what we hope will be the first part of a a few-part series, perhaps. Dealing with somebody that we know is well-loved, and we will probably get a bit of hate, I think, internet hate from this if we post it. And that is, we are often, you and I, disappointed in the works of J.J. Abrams. And we wanted to start talking about him in particular because this is one where we often feel that he creates gaps a lot. And we had been talking about what we talked about originally. Were we talking about Lost originally when you brought this up? Lost or The Leftovers, maybe. Mm. Um, but did he have anything to do with The Leftovers? No, just that him. It was just the he'd worked with Lindelof on Lost. Yeah. Right. So they're very split. Really similar, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so here we have what, if we can put a link in the show notes, we will put a link to J.J. Abrams' talk, a TED talk, where he talks about the mystery box. And this is where I had been probably venting my frustration about Lost and saying that I would not want to follow anything else that he creates because of how much Lost just sucked me in and then disappointed me in the end. And Lindelof as well, this is why The Leftovers, you really had to talk me into seeing season two, because I said, no, I've, I've been burned once, I'm not doing this again, <laughs> and now, probably for this podcast, I'll probably be sucked back into The Leftovers, if not uh, Lost, which we've talked about possibly going into at some point, because so, there's a lot to it. It's but a big commitment. That would be a big commitment. And for the record, I love I love Lost. Um just uh, despite its flaw, oh, I've I've watched uh, it the whole thing because you said three, you okay three times you in the chat you were saying love hate relationship was that just with Abrams in general or was that with, with Lost, Lost? Uh, because I would say I have a very love hate relationship with Lost as well I, but it's more like I loved it in the beginning and then I hated it by I've the end. always described Lost as a or one of my friends said, he, he phrased it well, he said, it's like an abusive relationship where you, you keep on getting punched in the face, but you go back. Right. Um, I think that's how I felt with Loss for a while. But like I said, I've, I've watched it multiple times. I really do enjoy it. You've watched the whole series multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. All 108 episodes. A lot of time, and you're the one talking about it being a big commitment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do want to. I mentioned this to you before. If we do watch it, maybe we should try the chronologically lost and watch it in order. But we can talk about that another time. We can talk about another time. I think that'll be more frustrating, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, but no, Abrams in general. Um, I, I was say Lost is probably my first real encounter with Abrams. I had seen, I'm pretty sure I had seen Mission Impossible 3 before that, but only knew him as the creator of Alias, a show I didn't really watch. And I only found out today that he did Mission Impossible. I'd, I've seen Mission Impossible 3, but I didn't even know it was him, to be honest. Well, we also, we didn't know there was some... Did that old... come out before or after Lost? They were actually at the same time. So Lost ran from roughly 2004 to 2010. And Mission Impossible was 2006. I would have seen Mission Impossible before Lost because I did not start watching Lost until, I think, just prior to season four. It would have been... In fact, I can tell you it was the winter of uh, 2008 to 2009. That's when I started to watch. So I would have known about Mission Impossible 3, but not much else. And 
to be totally honest, Mission Impossible 3 I wasn't that happy with. We would mentioned just before we started recording that you didn't think you were that happy with it, but perhaps because 2 was so bad, yeah, two was you're awful. giving it the benefit of the doubt. And I kind of wonder if that's the case as well. I want to rewatch it and see how I feel now. But today we're talking about the mystery box and kind of what that speech, that presentation tells us about him and his process and the way he thinks about things. And you had originally recommended it kind of saying, I'm not sure if I should recommend it because it might make you even (laughs) angrier. And I think that that was a valid statement because it did, which is why I think that we are discussing it today, months later after you had recommended it the first time. So let's talk about the mystery box. Spoilers for the TED Talk. <laughs> I guess we, we, we have to throw it out there, right? But One thing I noticed which was weird, I, I've watched, a, I'm sure you've watched a lot of TED stuff as well, is that's the first TED Talk that I've ever seen where they've edited. Did you know, did you see the cut? And they weren't good edits either. They were really jarring kind of cuts into that. So everyone that goes to TED, they're on their 20 minute timer or whatever it is and they 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 give that presentation to the second almost yeah. and then they're 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 done. But there was at least I don't know a half dozen cuts in that. He was just rambling on and going off and he went must have gone double his time. But they annoyingly gave him a standing ovation. Though though it wasn't a I, very good one. I will say this. <laughs> when you first see people start standing up there's one guy sitting in the front row who like refuses to yeah. get up, and that guy is my hero. Yeah. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a Ken Robinson standing ovation. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, what are they required to give a standing ovation? Perhaps. All right. Well, let's let's talk through. So you you'll probably hear this paper ruffle uh, a little bit, but. I wanted to take some notes because I wanted to make sure that I was actually talking about what he said and not just my interpretation of what he said. That's fair enough. So he begins with why he is interested in mystery. And he talks about his grandfather was the uh, apparently a huge influence in his life. And he said that his grandfather was the type of person who would always take things apart and got him interested in seeing how things worked. In fact, he pulls out a Kleenex box that he took apart to see how it was put together, referring to it as a beautiful thing, even when the audience was laughing at it. Which, I don't disagree with him. Seeing how simple things are made is pretty fantastic. Yep. I, I do appreciate that. But I do have a problem with this, which hopefully I'll remember to get to at the end. But then, uh, his grandfather, or maybe his grandmother, I wasn't sure at this point, but he ended up with a synthesizer so that he could create music and so he could make stuff, not just take it apart. And a Super 8. Yes. So, huge influence of life. Great. Then it leads to his grandfather took him to a magic shop. Apparently on a regular basis, it made it sound anyway like this was a regular thing. And he bought Tannen's magic mystery box. $15 buys $50 of magic. And he pulls out the box and he puts it on the stage for us to see. And he likes the design and it has a question mark on it and he says this box always sits in his office and he's had this box since he was a child and it has never been opened and this is the crux of his point this is the crux of kind of our frustration and uh at least that's it would be the crux of my (laughs) frustration because it says a lot about him now i'm not saying that i also didn't do things like this as a kid possibly like there were many times where i would not want to use something 
because I'd be afraid of ruining it. I was really bad about decals that came with toys because I wouldn't want to. You put them on and if you messed it up, they were stuck on the toy crooked forever, essentially, in my yeah. mind. And so I, I can I can understand to a point. But remember, this is his TED talk and this is him talking about his writing process his creative process, and essentially who he is as a storyteller. And that box has clearly been opened. Did it? I, I, you know, I see, there's like tape all around the sides <laughs> of it. It was taped up. <laughs> but I think, was it not taped originally in the store so you couldn't look in to see what Perhaps, was... Perhaps, yeah. But it? It looked, to me, it just like looked like it was it'd been opened and then like, oh yeah, I'll just tape that back up now. <laughs> Get my $50 of magic out of it and then tape it up and it can continue to be the mystery box. I would so love it if that was the case. But no. Let, let's assume, <laughs> I'm going to assume, he's not opened it. That it was taped originally so kids wouldn't peek in to see what was in there. So this sits in his office and reminds him why he wants to write stories and the way he wants to tell stories. So he says, it represents his grandfather and something important. Infinite possibility. This he brings up a few times. Infinite possibility. He says, mystery is catalyst for imagination. He says, mystery is more important than knowledge. And that is a direct quote from what he said there. And that is exactly my frustration. With that's JJ not the kind of, kind of, and when he said that as well, I was like, that's not the kind of thing you want to say at a TED conference. <laughs> <laughs> you would think not, where it's all about spreading knowledge. Yeah, right? I mean, that's their, their kind of, their mantra, isn't it? <laughs> you think they should have got the big hook and pulled them off the stage at that point? <laughs> See, I'm not sure exactly where we want to go, because I can, I can walk through the whole thing. You go I, for it, and I'll I, jump in at a point, because, okay. I mean, I, I've just got random things that I wanted to, to say about it, because it frustrated me, because I've, I've seen it already. I said, I, I put you onto it because we were talking about Lost, and, and I said, this will probably make you angrier. But then, I went, even when I rewatched it, I started, there was, there was a couple of things that I remembered that really annoyed me from the first time that I saw it. And I'm sure it's in your, your notes. So um, let's, let's just keep going. So there were, he then talks about Lost. And he says there were, by the time he came on, there were only about 11 and a half weeks to create the Lost pilot. Uh, so there's not really much time to develop it. I wrote, I wrote that down as well. And that's, that in itself, to be fair, is incredible. That is incredible. And that's fine. But we're talking to create the pilot. And he did that. That's that's great. But you'd have to create the pilot with the with surely with a future in mind, although yeah, maybe not in this in in, in his case. <laughs> <laughs> For lost. That's yeah. But to have some kind of vision, you can't just write the pilot and be like, Okay, I'm out it's like you have to have season one plotted at least before. Do you though? I feel like there are a number of shows that don't. I feel like there are a number of shows that don't. Thanks, Jake. I forgot to switch that off. Hang on. Sorry. So, 11 and a half weeks. Yeah, it's incredible. It's um, it's, in, it's incredible to pull it off. I agree. Because he was talking about they had to do the casting still. They had to do everything still. That's that's an insane schedule to pull off. Uh, I think the original pilot two, was two hours, right? Two hours. So you're essentially making a, a movie. TV movie in yeah. three months. Yeah. And that's really impressive. And I understand. But after that point, I would think you would start to put together something cohesive and i'm not sure that they did but that's that's my problem with for, you, you mean right? for a lot well that's that that's another that's definitely another right. episode yeah so he refers to the blank page as a mystery box so is his apple computer and here is the part where 
I feel showing his clip from Lost, I really didn't understand why it was there or why it was needed. I think most anybody who was there to see him would have known what Lost was. We, we didn't really need a clip. I felt like he used a lot of clips unnecessarily to fill... Like you said, maybe they had to cut to... Because he kept... Playing clips. Playing clips to yeah. full time. And But here's where he really irritates me, where I think he really irritates both of us, is he talks about Star Wars. Yeah. And he says that it's the mysteries that keep us going. So he says, oh, we meet the droids. We don't know who they are. And they meet a mystery woman. Who is that? And then we move on to, oh, we meet Obi-Wan, but we don't know who... We, well, we meet old Ben, and then we find out, oh, he is Obi-Wan, right? But this is what really, really, really bothers me about him, in particular, especially when he's talking about Star Wars. He's saying, who is this mystery woman? We find out who that mystery woman is, like, two minutes later, when she talks to Vader. It's not that much of a mystery. What was she doing? Oh, we find out about ten minutes later. Every one of the mysteries he brings up is something that is explained in the same movie. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw that, and it really bugged me because, yeah, he's like, oh, it's, this is a mystery box. There's a mystery box. Obi-Wan's a mystery box. This is a mystery box. The Death Star's a mystery box. It's like, no, all no. of those are solved mysteries in that movie. All of those are opened up. That's the whole point of storytelling. You create a mystery, and then you solve it. Which like, is what he doesn't do, which he, he irritates me so much as a storyteller. And as soon as that comes out of his mouth, it's like, I think he doesn't even understand his own idea of what a mystery box is, you know, because he's saying what it is. And then he's giving a completely wrong example of, of how it works. It's like, that's not even what you just said. How can I trust anything that you're saying anymore when you don't even understand your own concept was what I took from that. It's like, um, yeah, it really annoyed me. And when he was talking about Jaws as well. Uh, well, before we get to that. That annoyed me li- as well. Listeners. But, Fair warning, we are not huge fans of The Force Awakens. Mm. And we will be discussing The Force Awakens. Now, we know possibly the new movie that uh, by this come, by the time this comes out, the new movie will have already been released by a different director that may answer a lot of the questions that we will be discussing. But we were both very frustrated with a lot of the things about The Force Awakens that we felt were mystery boxes. Yeah. Uh, so that that will be in the future. But that's particularly why I think the Star Wars thing just hit home so much. Yeah. Because we've now seen what he did with Star Wars. And anyway, yeah. we're frustrated. Yeah. So, uh, But that's what I put in my notes. As I said, well, each step is a mystery box. But um, he even admits the answers were given. So he doesn't seem to have a concept of mm. yeah, what, what he means here. He all... Uh, Another quote from that presentation, he says, Withholding information is much more engaging. Okay, so in this respect, and this is where, this is how I can defend Lost. It work, for, for me, it works for, it works for a TV show. The mystery, his idea of a mystery box works for a TV show like Lost because it is engaging because after every single episode, Reddit or wherever we, you would find stuff online would explode and people would have crazy theories. There was a person who made a website and he timelined everything as it was going on, as, as the show was taking place. Everyone was contributing to it. It was like the Black Watchmen, again. It was all these people analyzing single frames of, of stuff. And by the end of it, the guy had an amazing story. Unfortunately, it wasn't JJ's idea. 
and JJ's idea wasn't as good as this internet theory. Mm-hmm. They never are. But yeah, it was engaging. It was engaging because everyone was like, oh, what's going to happen next episode? What's going to happen? What's going to happen at the end of the season? End of season comes. Oh, what's going to happen next season? Very engaging, super engaging because it was a story that drew you in a lot of good characters. But again, we can talk about Lost Till the Cows Come Home later. But mm-hmm. I get where he's coming from with that quote. Does, I, it, does it work for a movie? Not at all. Because you don't have, you're not, you're not on Reddit as the movie's unfolding saying, oh, I wonder if this happens. So it's not engaging to withhold information at all. Here's the thing. I think that a lot of Abram's quotes taken out of context sound very, very intelligent. And I, uh, let me say this now. I don't have a personal grudge against him. I don't dislike him as a person. I'm sure if I met him, we have lots of similarities in what we've watched in the past and likes, and they're probably, we probably hit it off and have like a great conversation about media and pop culture. But as a storyteller, I do find him very, very frustrating. And this is one of the biggest things is the mystery boxes. The withholding information is more engaging. It's more engaging until we never get an answer. There are a handful of things we've discussed. Uh, Jim Henson's The Cube, where it's not really defined, but that's kind of the point of it. Where you create a mystery like Lost, I think where the frustration for me is most is it seems to be the motivation for most of the characters is to figure out what is going on. And so when they can't get to that point, that's when I, I get lost, when I feel like I've been left out. You create more and more mysteries, you create more and more engagement but when you haven't paid off some of the past mysteries i lose a lot of interest in the newer mysteries uh he brings up examples that are really frustrating so withholding information so he says the shark in jaws but the shark is not information uh we don't see it because it didn't work well and it worked better for the movie i think everybody agrees with that but we still knew what was going on yeah and that was an accident anyway wasn't it that we didn't get to see the shark, yeah. so it wasn't even planned that way. <laughs> it wasn't planned, but that's that's the prime example that most people will use for sometimes it's better not to see the monster, right? Sometimes it's better not, but we still knew what was going on. It wasn't a mystery, but we were able to fill in the scenes in our head. He brings up Alien, which I think he was talking about the first Alien movie. Yeah. He says we barely see it, and it's better that we barely saw it, which I'm not sure because Aliens is... Awesome, and we see it a lot in that one. But I understand what he's saying, but again, we've seen it. We do see it. It's not a complete mystery. We know what's going on. Yeah, and okay, so there is the mystery box of, I guess, we don't see it, but we do get to see it at the end. Yeah, and it chews a guy in half. So, um, again, payoff for, yeah. for withholding that information. You get a giant shark eating someone at the end. Wonderful. Then he pulls up, An example, which is an interesting example, which is the date from The Graduate, where we don't actually hear the conversation. I've never seen The Graduate. Probably something that you should see. Uh, But there are other situations. Have you seen Swingers? Yes. Okay, so uh, right towards... Spoilers for Swingers. Right towards towards the end of uh, Swingers, there's a a conversation where he's been frustrating... Like, uh, John Favreau's character has been really frustrated uh, trying to meet women. And he finally meets one, and he has this conversation, and for the most part, we don't hear what they say. And stylistically, it was done very, very well, and I 
I totally understand that. And so this would be a similar situation. Like, you don't really know what was said. You just know that it was a successful conversation and that it must have gone well. Right. And so I, I understand, yeah, sometimes we don't need to be told absolutely everything. And sometimes that is better. But it's not the same for me as what he's describing as a mystery box. Because there is no mystery there. We know they had a good conversation. I don't really need to know what it is. I'm not frustrated by that. Whereas a lot of the stuff that he has made with Lost, with Force Awakens, there are a number of things that get brought up that I feel need to be explained and are never explained. It's not the same. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, I think, specifically, yeah. especially in The Force Awakens. There are a few things that I think very specifically hold up for that. The thing... Again, this isn't really about the mystery box, but it just shows me... I don't want to say he doesn't know what he's doing, but... Cause I clearly I, he must, because he keeps getting work. Well, yeah. And, and well, why don't you write a movie, Darren? Yeah, because I can't. You know, I'm not, I'm not talented in that way at all. I'm not saying that I am. I'm just saying that when someone says, I hold the, the answers, or I don't hold the answers, I hold the mysteries, and then goes on to show a clip of Jaws as if it's... To me, it seemed like he was really patting himself on the back with that Jaws clip and like, look what I've discovered. Well, we need to talk about which Jaws clip because he uses so, three, I think. Are we talking about the well, one with the the character and like his son, right? Yeah. So the, the clip that I was I was talking about was the, yeah, the clip with his son where he's, well, we've all seen Jaws and if you haven't, go and see it. Um, I don't think this is a huge spoiler. <laughs> no, I'm saying like if you if you haven't seen Jaws, just go yeah, and definitely go, go see you it. Have yeah, go, yeah. You have to go and watch it. Um, go and watch it. It's not on in the cinemas anymore. Um, anyway, the part with him and his son where he's had a bad day and the son and him they're mimicking each other. Blah 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 blah. And then he's like, he says that you may not notice this, but this is the best part of the movie and stuff because it builds character. And it's like. When I was a kid and I watched that, I really loved that part. I didn't love the giant shark. I really liked that part because it reminded me of my dad. Uh, it might not have been saying, oh, this is character development and you should care about this this person. This person has feelings. It didn't because a movie shouldn't really do that. It should do it subtly. And it does it really subtly in Jaws, like that part where he's like, to his son, he's like, give me a kiss. Why? Because I need it. And watching it now, it's like, oh, yeah, that's really amazing. That's a really good scene. Another scene that's similar for me was the whole mashed potato scene in... Uh, you know, they're, they're incidental to the movie, but they're really powerful, amazing bits. And when he turns around and he's like, oh, look, this is this is the, this, the hidden gem. It's like, we know, man. You don't need to tell us that. <laughs> All right, let me say, this is the part where he discusses the mystery box what you think you're getting is not what you are actually getting. And for this, I disagree with this whole section of his presentation, to be honest. He discusses E.T. is not a story about a boy and an alien, but rather about divorce, which is in there. It is part of it, but it is a story about a boy and an alien. Yeah. Right. Uh, he talks about Die Hard, uh, Die Hard also being a tale of divorce which yeah i would say much more so than than et but it's still about a guy saving his wife and as many people as possible from bad guys yeah okay i still think that's the majority i think what he is saying is the mystery box are how do i put this i would say what he is describing as the mystery box are the things that give extra depth to characters 
and to their motivation in general. I don't think these are the main points of these stories. Yeah, because that's the thing he says when people rip off movies. And that was another point that I had a problem with when he's like, he's saying, don't don't rip off the shark, rip off the The characters. But that's not how, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, Sharknado is, you know, it's Jaws. It's a ripoff of Jaws, basically. And uh, okay, there's a movie I haven't seen. Oh, um, I don't think I have either. <laughs> but I mean, it works because it's just it's it's just a bit of entertainment. It's and it's Jaws is about a giant shark. Yes, it's got lots of cool parts in it. It's got the whole "Show me the way to go home" bit is amazing. The scar is when he shows his appendix scar. It's hilarious. Um, so much character development. Yeah, but for him to turn around and say rip off Robert Shaw, don't rip off the shark, is, no, just write a good character into your movie. Yeah, uh, I I found that, yeah, when he was saying people that rip off to do sequels or reboots are ripping off the wrong things. Oh, like and... a giant Death Star? <laughs> oh, man, come on. <laughs> Clearly, we're going to be discussing that one in The Force Awakens one. Check but, I, but I also found that, like, oh, Ripping off the characters like that also seems to smack right into Force Awakens for me as well. And I I don't know. I mean, this is this is before he did any of those things. But now that he's very much in that world, having done Star Trek and Star Wars, it's just odd to hear him say that. Yeah. I mean, maybe he watches that talk now and goes, oh, what have I become? <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, but then... Like, already I feel like he's gone... I put in my notes, I said, at what point does he actually lose the plot of this presentation? Because I think possibly very early on. Uh, but we'll, we'll maybe discuss it right at the end. But he starts going off on everything being a mystery box. He's like, distribution is a mystery box. And being in a movie theater when the lights go out, that's a mystery box. And that's the most... Ex- what does he say? He says, like, that's the best part. Is when the lights go down. Yeah. Um, no. A good movie is the best part. It's when you walk out and you have that feeling, yeah, like, wow, that was amazing, yeah. Yeah. When I walked out of Memento, I had seen a string of just bad and disappointing movies for a long time, and it totally re-energized my love of movies again. And, you know, whether you like or didn't like the movie, for me, I did. I loved it at the time, I still love it now. There's really something to that movie. And that was the best part. Me walking in, waiting for the lights to go out and for the trailers to come on. I mean, that's not the exciting part for me. But then he goes worse. Like he shows indie clips of like special effects at the, there's like an airplane running into a car and some other things. These are so impressive because now anybody can do it. I said, well, okay, but your point was the mystery box. Can we get back to that? I'm not sure. So he's totally, like, given up on the mystery I, box. I, I felt like that point. was like, I have to throw in some technology stuff here. Like, yeah, look at this. This is technology yeah. from 15 years ago. And he's saying, oh, the media is now so uh, democratized, so anyone can do it. And this is a long time ago, mind you. And it's even more, I guess, democratized now. I guess anybody can do it now. I mean, look at us doing a podcast now, right? So I, I get his point. But it doesn't really have anything to do with his mystery box. Then he shows a clip 
from Mission Impossible 3. His movie telling this story about shooting, I guess, because he thought it was interesting, because you don't hurt Tom Cruise's nose, I guess. It was a mildly amusing anecdote, but had nothing to do with his mystery box analogy. I mean, if anything, it was just like the... I get it, it's like the, the sleight of hand of of Hollywood filming. You know, it's like, oh, it's his own hand. Yeah, it's like, okay, that's a neat trick. Yeah. It's not a mystery box. So I I personally, uh, that's, that's how he ended. I feel like he lost it pretty early on because he talked very much about his grandfather showed him how things work and how things were put together and how he himself still is curious about how things are put together and he wants to know how it works and he took apart a Kleenex box to see how it worked. But then the rest of the time he's trying to convince us that we shouldn't want to know how things work. We should just be happy they're mysteries. And that's not what I want in a movie. I want it to fit together. I want it to work together. Yeah. I mean, what's wrong with that? (laughs) I mean, that's essentially what this podcast is about. How I'm very frustrated with these gaps that have been left. And I feel like he is one of the biggest creators of gaps. Um, On purpose as well. Yeah. Clearly, like, that's, that's the thing with this mystery box that really irritates me is he is saying having these mysteries is more engaging. So that's why we have them. And that's why we're going to continue to have them. And other people try to be like him. And so now he's inspiring a whole group of, like, a whole generation of filmmakers, of uh, TV producers who want to use the same mentality and I find that very frustrating I mean also as well maybe to contextualize the whole thing is that talk was given probably me I'm not sure when it was but probably before the end of Lost yes uh, no, I think that it may have been after he wasn't as involved right but I mean, I mean, my point is that Lost wasn't even finished by this point, and it was very successful. And he did have like it's like he hit upon this formula, where Lost, like I said, Lost was successful because of because it was engaging with the community, and we all had theories and ideas, and we all wanted to know how it was going to finish, and the payoff at the end. Yeah, it was a lot of people were disappointed, but I think. Based on that, maybe he's like, oh, this is a really good idea. I just withhold information and make it up as I go along uh, or let them make it up as they go along. And they seem to be having fun with it. So I'm going to keep going with that. And like I said, it, for me, it works for TV, some TV, but uh, it certainly doesn't work with movies because it, it, it can't. And like like we just like what, what we, just, we were just talking about, um, you can't say you can't take apart stuff and put them back together and see how they work and then say, actually, that's not that's not important. That's only important for me. <laughs> but it can be important for you. You just gotta take the mystery box. I've 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 opened it and taped it back up again. I've seen what's inside it. I bet I'm I'm five bucks says he's opened it. <laughs> um I don't I don't I don't know. I, I just don't know like you're making it sound you're making it sound like he does know the answers. And I, oh, no, I, I mean, so. yeah, well, that's, that's, that's another point. I mean, yeah, d- does he even have the answers? I'm not, I'm not sure. But, I mean, I would hope that you would, but probably not. No. He's got great ideas. That's what, that's, that, that's what he's got. He's got great ideas. That's exactly it. This is the way I've always felt about J.J. Abrams. As a producer, probably a great guy. 
right? He's very creative. Energetic. Energetic. He promotes. And rumor has it, I don't know, I've never seen him in action, but that he's a great pitch man, right? And I'm sure he probably is. I'm probably, with all the stuff that he's had made, he must be very good at the pitch and selling things. And he seems also very personable and likable. Like I said, if I met him, I would probably have a very, well, now that we've making this podcast if he's ever heard it the likelihood of him actually wanting to talk to me is broadly nil but save we we hadn't done that then yes then possibly we could have had an interesting conversation and i i don't doubt that right but for me abrams has always been somebody who can come up with a terrific idea for a story and it starts off amazingly well and then by the end it just falls apart or never really feels complete. And it's almost like, well, can I get to my quotes now? Okay, so (laughs) I went through the Internet Movie Database uh, profile of him, and there were, to be fair, listeners, I am picking out ones that kind of prove my point, but assuming that they've done their research and these are verified quotes, they, um, they say a lot about who he is and my opinion of him. Now, there are some others that... Also, again, I don't know out of context. These are all out of context, but some of the quotes that he has in here are quite good. All right, but mm-hmm. uh, all right, let's let's talk. About, okay, so the first one I want to put out just because I think it's funny because of what you said. We are planning to do another episode on Super Eight, and <laughs> we'll probably mention this again on the podcast. But what did you say about? Um, I say I don't know how to how to preface it to get you to say it without <laughs> without giving it away. You said something very specifically about the technical side of Super 8. Do you remember? The technical side. Oh, uh, he's um, he got a lens flare up for Christmas. <laughs> That's exactly what you put. <laughs> but one of the quotes that I think is hilarious is he actually said, I actually had to have ILM remove lens flares <laughs> at some point. Wait, let me let me find that one. Let me find that one. Because that, that I found really... Okay, here it is. I actually had to use industrial light and magic to remove lens flare in a couple of shots, which is, I know, moronic. But I think admitting you're an addict is the first step towards recovery. So now, I don't know what movie that is from. It's probably I, Super 8. It's probably Super 8. But it could have also been Star Trek. Because the first Star Trek also... It, that, that's where there were parts in Super 8 though that were just like there was one part where they were climbing down a ladder into a, a cave in darkness and there was lens flare it's like how does that even work but I read a quote somewhere as well that he's intentionally someone said about working with him he's got guys off camera intentionally firing like fl- flashlights into the camera to make, to make it all the time like for multiple shots of the same scene so he must have lens flare in every scene almost, but in Super 8, it was heavy on the lens flare. Really, really. Yeah, I can believe that they actually had to edit some of that out. Uh, let's see. One of the, but I, I found that very <laughs> <That's> amusing. <hilarious. laughs> okay. Another quote he has. I feel like in telling stories, there are the things the audience thinks are important, and then there are the things that are actually important. I can see this as being, yes, the audience doesn't always know what's best. You, as the storyteller, want to tell the story your way. I understand. However, I do think there are times where you do need to listen to the audience and you do need to see, have I made a total misstep? I think particular, 
uh, like in particular when you are looking at something where you are taking over the reins of an existing property. So Star Wars, Star Trek, and he's going back to Star Wars. We know now, mm-hmm. at, at least at this point, it looks like he's going to be doing episode nine. And that's really going to bug me because it's going to be, it's going to end. It's not going to end. And that's... It's not going to end. It'll be, well, it'll, it'll end like Lost. That's it'll what I mean. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's like the, la- the reboot of the whole franchise. They're doing the next three movies and it's he's on the last finale of it. And it's just going to end with a billion unanswered questions. So I am very worried about that. I think I, it's hard for me as a kind of want to be creator of stories to to be too harsh on this quote because I agree like you do a lot of times need to write the story for yourself but I think there's a point where for example like um you just sent me a link today for a really terrible article about Tommy Wiseau saying he wants to direct Star Wars oh no he he's too busy to direct Star Wars he but he'd be happy to act in it whereas Honestly, at this point, I, well, we'll see. I mean, there's the new movie coming I'd watch out, it. But I would watch it. I would definitely it. I would, watch it. I would watch it. I would say, don't give him the $100 million. <laughs> Let, make him do it for, you know, 50 grand or yeah. whatever he made the original The Room for. You know, like, that would be very interesting. Yeah. So it's, especially if you have him do a standalone movie. I think it could be. <laughs> of course, he would have to be the, he'd make himself the main actor. Wouldn't yeah, he? he would be the main Jedi or whatever. Mm. Would it be better or worse than the Star Wars Christmas special? <laughs> I've never made it all the way through, you guys. <laughs> I think it would be on par, but lower quality. At least in the holiday special, you had Art Carney and I think the Arthur and some random celebrities show up. And this would be equally bad, but with less production value. Yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Though hopefully without that really annoying Chewbacca's family scene at the end. (laughs) The reason I bring up, the reason I bring up Tommy Wiseau is I feel he is one of those people who no matter how much he's been criticized, he doesn't listen. And he still thinks that he's amazing. Does he think he's amazing? I think so. I get that impression. Okay. But, But that's my point is there is a point where you do kind of need to listen. If you tune out all criticism. I can understand if you say, oh, the audience doesn't, but these other people that I trust are giving me good feedback. But if you're never getting feedback, then you're also missing something. That quote kind of worries me. Yeah. And it, and it also means that he could continue to do, you know, the same thing and make the same, what I feel are mistakes over and over again, right? Now, possibly the lens flare thing, maybe he got made fun of enough for it, but that's, hopefully he'll be reducing that in the future, right? Yeah. And, was there a lens flare in Force Awakens quite well, a lot? Well, no one re- rewatch it. I assume that there's some, but not... Not as much. Not like Star Trek, so... No. Yeah, there's quite a lot in Star Trek. <laughs> I think there was definitely less in the second Star Trek movie okay. than there was in the first. Yeah. Yeah. And by episode nine of Star Wars, yeah, be heavily reduced. Yeah. Maybe just once. <laughs> that, that would actually be quite interesting if you ever got to the point where, hmm, we actually could have used some lens flare here. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Yeah, actually, that's true. He does, like, Super 8 had more lens flare than Mass Effect. That's, uh, you played Mass Effect? Yeah, there's tons of lens I flare I played in that. the second one. Yeah. There's, yeah. Ah, oh, man, there's so much in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's the next quote. Okay. 
I've always liked working on stories that combine people who are relatable with something insane. The most exciting thing for me is crossing that bridge between something that we know is real and something that is extraordinary. The thing for me has always been how you cross that bridge. This is fine. Makes sense. Uh, can you figure out what my real problem with this quote is? That it makes sense? and that... <laughs> <laughs> Well, that. But for me, we'll get more to this in Super 8, I think, mm. in particular. But he says he wants to combine people who are relatable with something insane. I don't always find his characters relatable. And I think this is where I find frustration. Where he points out very relatable characters in other movies. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that, that quote isn't as powerful as I thought. But, uh, like, it makes sense. Again, it's a decent quote. And I, I agree with it out of context. But when it comes to him, then I start analyzing it more. And particularly the relatable characters. I mean, Lost definitely had some relatable characters. Uh, and some that I felt were not. But some of his other movies, I felt, are a bit weak on relatable characters. And so that, I think that, for me, is where I found it very frustrating. What was the, sorry, what was the quote? I've always liked working on stories that combine people who are relatable with something insane. I don't even understand what that means, to be honest. Like, does he mean something... Well, take, take for example... Uh, well, Lost, because we could do oh, a lot of Lost. Okay. Uh, so you've got Jack, mm -hmm. you've got Hurley, you've got Kate, you've got Sawyer, you've got Locke. Yeah. And the something is saying is the entire island. Oh, okay. You've got a smoke oh. monster, you've right. got okay. a plane crash that becomes something much mm. more. Okay, okay. I, um, so do you mean like a, a relatable character in an insane situation is what he means? Then. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I thought like relatable to something insane like it was like they've gone crazy or something like that, or they're possessed by demons like Ethan Carter or something but yeah that doesn't well, make sense he's, he's, he's not done yet <laughs> um, but no I mean the thing is the quotes and like what you said is you know he is encouraging the next generation of filmmakers to get on this mystery box tour for us to criticise him and, and not we're not just outright dragging him through the mud. I mean, like I said, I love Lost, and I, I, we do think he's got wonderful ideas. There, they can be amazing. That just it feels like they fall apart. They're unfinished ideas. It, like he cannot finish the good ideas because they are re really good. It's like really hard to finish something. It is. It's hard to see something through to the end completely. But when you're in a position of power like he is, you need to be able to take some criticism. I know you're, you're trying to rush because I think we we need to finish the episode soon. But mm -hmm. let's. There are two more. Mm -hmm. There are two more. And the, I've saved them. I've, I've built oh, up yeah. to these, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, the first one. Now, this is a long one. Okay. Pay attention. Okay, I'm listening. Directing's the best part. Whenever I've directed something, there's this feeling of demand and focus that I like. And secondly, it means you've gotten through all the writing stuff and the producing stuff and casting and prep and all those stages that are seemingly endless. So directing is sort of the reward for all the work you put in before. And then there's the editing, which is another amazing stage of the process. It's incredible the moments you can create. Even within this quote, you can't finish the thought. <laughs> and that's where I find it very frustrating. Oh, directing is the best part. Oh, yeah, but editing. Editing is great. He, he's just a bit... Scatterbrained? Yeah. yeah. Like that, that's the way it feels to me. But then I've saved the, the top quote that comes up when I look on my phone, and it's the one that totally stuck out to me. Here's my favorite quote. I'm an impatient guy 
and tend not to like to stay with one thing for a long time. I'll never be able to write as many scripts as I did for Felicity or Alias ever again. I'm just too impatient these days. I want to get on to the next project, and that, to me, yeah. just defines him as a storyteller, that he can't wait to finish this one to get on to the next one, but he can't wait, meaning if he's halfway through, he's ready to move on to something else. As a producer, I'm for him. I think he gets some interesting material out there. As a writer, for the beginning, he could write the pilot of things terrifically. As a director trying to do a full story, no. Like, that's, that's where it always feels like it falls flat. No, maybe I need to go back. Maybe I do need to sit through Felicity, maybe not, but Alias, maybe I need to try. That seems to be the thing that made him a household name. That seemed to be the thing that got him into talks for Lost and many of the other things that he's done. And maybe seeing him having gone through an entire story like that where he was much more involved, maybe that's what I'm missing. But Lost began well, ended poorly. And Mission Impossible 3, I thought, also started well ended poorly. Super 8, I felt was a brilliant idea at the beginning, fell apart for the end for me. All good beginnings, no good ending. And what am I left thinking about when I leave the theatre, when I turn off the TV? You're thinking about the excitement you had when the lights went down at the beginning. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but apparently he is. And I find that very frustrating. That quote, that last quote, is really important. Because, you know, quotes tell who you are, obviously, because you're saying them. And even if it was an offhanded comment or whatever, that's who you are. And I can totally see that. It's like, I've got this amazing idea. It's about this deep sea station that has the ghosts of aliens running around. And that's stupid. No, but this and this and this. And there's time travel. And it's all crazy. And all right, so, okay, well, you sold me. Okay, do it. Okay, here it is. Oh, but I don't actually know why they're there or what they want or I haven't thought that far ahead yet. And bleh, you know, it just kind of dies. It's, I can totally see him. That's the kind of person that he is, you know. So like you said, producing, yep. Writing pilots, yep. Directing, the full, like having the full reins of something and having all these... The problem with me is everything he says is contradictory. Like... Mystery, have the mystery box, but I want to know how everything works and, and, and pieces together. Um, have this, but not this. Don't rip off the, 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 shark. the shark, but I'll rip off the Death Star. Everything he said, what he says and what he does are the opposite. Um, but I, I do think part of the issue, I, I'm not sure that he's ever directed anything that he didn't write. Right, okay. And that, that might play into that as well. Because again, he has the beginning of the story, but not necessarily the ending. Yeah, I mean, but you you would think that if you wrote it and directed it, it should be pretty flawless. You know, you'd think you'd think so. Like maybe I wrote this, the director didn't share. It. Like you know, The Shining and Kubrick. You know, I mean, it wasn't what Stephen King had in mind, mm -hmm. and Kubrick said, "Well, I don't care," <laughs> and and did it anyway. It might not make a difference. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, yeah, but we will be. Definitely discussing uh, Super 8 and Force Awakens yep. in the future. And possibly one more. We're kind of debating that one. But uh, if you want to be ahead of the game, make sure to watch at least Super 8 and Force Awakens so that uh, you don't have to worry about spoilers because there definitely will be. Plenty of them. <laughs> That's the beginning of the Abrams saga. Gaps filled or more gaps created? The Abrams Awakening.